Hello and welcome to the Women's Agenda podcast. My name is Angela Priestley. I'm here today with another special guest, uh, this time with Sarah Davidson. Sarah is the founder of Matcha Maiden, the host of the chart-topping podcast Seize the Yay, and now an author of a book by the same name. We talk about her shift from corporate life to entrepreneurship, the incredible sliding door moments that she's had in her life, how she's worked through and is continuing to work through some of the challenges of this year, the value of incorporating play into your life and so much more. This is a raw and honest conversation, but with a lot of positivity thrown in, which is so valuable right now. Thank you for listening. Sarah, thank you so much for joining me. Thank you so much for having me. It's such a pleasure. Now, you're a corporate lawyer turned entrepreneur. Um, you also describe yourself as a entrepreneur, which we will get into. You've launched a successful business that's expanded into a successful cafe there in Melbourne. You've got this really popular brand and following through your Seize the A podcast. And all of this happened through a series of sliding door moments, which you outline in your book, Seize the Yay. So to start, I thought that maybe you could just take us back to the life that you had and what you thought career and success really should be. Great question. I think I don't reflect often enough on old me and uh, appreciate just how much I've unlearned things and relearned them. But I think my very, very first sliding doors moment was actually my adoption. So I was born into a South Korean orphanage and was adopted by an incredible uh, white country bumpkin Australian family, both from rural towns in Victoria, but uh, we moved to Warrigal and then Melbourne. Uh, I was, I've been here since I was six months old, so I had a very Australian upbringing. But I think that's always given me a really strong sense of appreciation for the life that I have here and how very different it could have been. So mm. I think a combination of having a really curious intellectual mind, but also being really arty farty and always being that kid that was drawing on the walls. I did ballet as my first career. I sort of tried a bit of everything and had really supportive parents, but also put a lot of pressure on myself to make the most of my beautiful life that I've been given. Uh, that led to pretty much from pretty much from prep, really. I mean, I cried when we didn't get homework on my first day at school because that nerdy side really flourished. And then I went to an academic entry selective high school, which again, I think probably, um, Mm. probably fueled that sense of like, I need to make the most of my intellect. I need to make the most of every opportunity, which has been a great thing. It's always spurred me to make the most out of life. Probably also skewed me a little bit more towards success and a definition of like productivity and busyness that was based on external external views on what's worthy or what's a good enough job or what's prestigious or what's considered to be making the most of of your position. So um, old me was very much based on maybe not necessarily financial metrics, but definitely conventional conventional metrics of success. So promotions and titles. Mm. And I really, uh, in the school I was in, which was a wonderful environment for me to be in and allowed me to really flourish uh, at a time when I otherwise was becoming quite rebellious and naughty and discovering boys and parties and alcohol was a really fun time. Mm -hmm. Uh, That kind of uh, (laughs) redirected me back towards uh, my academic studies and I decided I wanted to get into law, not necessarily because I wanted to become a lawyer, but because I thought pretty much 
I was guided by what was considered worthy. And at that school, it was like law, medicine, pharmacy, Mm. all those kinds of pathways where there was a bit of an intellectual hierarchy of jobs. Mm. And that really guided all my decisions from the start of VCE or or higher school education, HSC in Sydney, I think it is for you guys. Then into uni, the same thing. I think I still had a very limited view of what jobs existed and then an even more limited view of what jobs I should do or could do. Uh, And I really honestly don't think I considered anything other than law or medicine. Like they were my two benchmarks for like, well, I don't like blood, so my other option is law. Like that's pretty much how the decision got made. Uh, And then uh, I went through arts law at uni, did lots of exchanges. I kind of kept both sides of my brain alive, that creative side in the arts degree and then the really academic side in law. Again, got to the end of seven years of studying and still didn't know what I wanted wanted Mm. to do. So law was, again, uh, a decision based on what looks good on the outside, what's objectively sensible to do and what will – open more doors rather than close them. Yeah. And I think and at that point as well, I mean, I, I just, just to cut in one thing with, I remember that stage of my life that's finishing university and even starting, you know, my first uh, full-time jobs. And I had studied journalism and I was trying to pursue a career in journalism, but I had this regret of not doing the journalism law degree. And one reason mm. why was because it just seemed so clear and you can be so confused at that time in your life. And it seemed like, no, this is what it means. You do this and then you get to this and then you become this and you become this and then the ultimate pinnacle, you become a law firm partner. Did you feel that at all? Absolutely. I mean, that's the only pathway I've ever entertained because I I just don't think at that overwhelming age where you're full of like hormones and like, you know, you're figuring out who you are and what you want and there's a lot of pressure to make forever decisions, like decisions that you think are going to be forever. Um, I didn't really know what jobs were out there, but even if I did know, I wouldn't have, I just, I wasn't exposed to the, I think, you know, there's so, I used to think of things as very black and white, but I'm realizing more and more in this day and age, there's so many gray areas of jobs and careers that I didn't even know existed that now you can do. But yeah, I definitely got on that productivity hamster wheel and very conventional view of life as being very linear. So I definitely thought like if I did law, it would be like, graduate, you know, internship, graduate, junior, first year, second year, third year, senior associate partner. Like that was one ladder. And then in every equivalent job, there was that trajectory that I just thought you sort of get on the hamster wheel and then like 40, 50 years later, you get off it and you retire. And that was really how I thought my life was going to go, which is also, I think, why we get so overwhelmed by the decision because we think we're deciding for the rest of our lives and you don't... (laughs) You don't appreciate that you can change your mind if it doesn't turn out how you expect it. Or even if it does turn out how you expect it, you're not meant to be the same person in every decade of your life, let alone you know, even in every year or month to month. Like the, the world moves so quickly that I don't think I had any concept of the possibility for change. I thought, okay, I'm making this decision forever. And it's the furthest I might veer away from law might be maybe international law or mm. a different type of law to the law I went into. And the furthest away possible would be diplomacy. But even still, I was like, oh, that's a really big jump away from my legal pathway. <laughs> like, I was very stuck in those. I saw the world in silos mm. and I thought you picked a silo and you couldn't swap ever again after that. So yeah. It's like I think also um, we look for these measures – 
of success in a way and and again these career paths where you can see what those I, I don't I know that when you got to starting your business it did happen you describe it as a bit of an accident but um I and I the way I grew up as well we never entertained the idea of entrepreneurship it wasn't mm. I don't even know if it was a word that I would have understood or kind of had much meaning for um but it didn't really ever seem like a path and even in law today this is what I wonder how people uh younger people kind of see their careers now because even in law there's so many options now that probably weren't around when you know even five ten years ago because there's so many legal startups there's so much interesting happening stuff happening in the space and there is almost like a pull away from this very kind of clear you know trajectory of success of what that kind of career looks like um but maybe I could you could take me to to the the, the path to entrepreneurship, uh, how that came about. Uh, like I said, a bit of a an accident in a way. Yeah, total accident. I was actually quite happy on that trajectory, even though I had conceived of my life in a very stable, certain ten year plan kind of way. I wasn't unhappy with that. I genuinely was quite satisfied by the structure of it, the certainty of it the stability. I loved that, you know, I could predict where I'd be in a five years time and that I did get a lot of intellectual satisfaction and fulfillment mm. from being a lawyer. I loved it. I really did. There were times where I loved the prestige and I loved the learning environment. And that's what makes me really scared now because I get goosebumps looking back and thinking that because it was an accident and because I wasn't looking for anything else, but for one tiny fork in the road, I might never have known that I was actually just settling. I hadn't even, as you said, the word, I love the word um, entertained. Like I hadn't even entertained that I might want something else, let alone stumbling headfirst into that and realizing that I was being very distracted by productivity and busy and success and all these ideals without realizing I actually didn't care about the ladder that I was climbing. It wasn't, it's not even mm. 50% the right use of my specific individual blend of creativity and intellect. Mm. So um, I had three great years, wasn't actively looking to go anywhere else. Uh, and it wasn't until I, <laughs> a combination of things happened. I went to Africa with my husband whose creative agency had been working on a campaign that led us to a beautiful school in rural Rwanda of all places. And I think that was the start of seeing what I expected over there was that I would feel an immense gratitude for what we have here. What I saw was pure happiness mm. there and came back to an office where all the things that we create around us made us anxious. And we were almost further removed from happiness than I'd ever actually understood. So that was probably the start of it. At the same time, I brought home a gut parasite. So with all these revelations floating mm -hmm. around, I also became incredibly sick. I was so detached from the idea of my self-worth being separate to my productivity. So I just went straight back to work, like I reckon two hours off the plane, dropped 15 kilos still kept going to the gym, going to work, eating my broccoli. I was like, why aren't I really healthy? I don't understand what's happening. <laughs> and uh, I collapsed at work. Uh, three months later, I totally broke down, had a full adrenal fatigue meltdown, which was a fun time. And in that process, was banned from coffee, which at the time was a bit of a death sentence. I was like, I'm, I can't work without coffee. I'm 10 cups a day kind of gal. <laughs> yeah, me but too I at was... the moment. Even worse now, but uh, I don't know what I'd do if somebody told me I, I couldn't drink coffee. So... <laughs> Well, you can I, imagine I can try. the quandary, right? Yeah, 
Yeah, exactly. Exactly. I yeah. was like, how can I? I mean, it's totally illegal for me to do any other substances. <laughs> I need something. You know, like, what, uh, <laughs> I need something. But I got sent to the law firm's headquarters in Hong Kong, which again was an opportunity I thought was exciting and brilliant and another kind of rung on this corporate ladder that I was getting notches on my belt and, you know, having these wonderful um, opportunities to work on big global deals and, like, there is a bit of glitz and glam and M&A where I was. But over there I discovered matcha powder, which is, mm. of course, the green tea uh, mm. leaves ground into a powdered form that then forms the basis of our first business. And it was only in returning to Australia and not really finding a good quality attractively marketed, Instagram-friendly kind of health food-focused version that was accessible to buy that my husband and I found some online. It only came in bulk. We ordered it. We wanted to get rid of some of it to get a bit of our money back and also mm. get rid of a pallet of matcha green tea in our house. <laughs> so it started as a side hustle, as a complete accident, and it was only by that developing into something that showed me that if I – that showed me that that kind of work that's much more creative, linguistic focused, relationship based, and incredibly dynamic. I was like, oh, I didn't know that that a light switched on that I didn't even know was off before. That's the only way I can really describe it. Mm-hmm. And it opened up so many other possibilities as well. And one of those is the cafe. Um, which I want to ask you about being in Melbourne at the moment. And I just had a little look. I I've never been to this cafe. I really want to go there. Um, I just looked at the photos on Instagram and I'm like, yes, give me, give me, I'll eat all of this. Um, so I'll put it on my list when we can next uh, cross borders. So, but what, what, so got into a cafe. So maybe just quickly, if I could ask what, what, what that's like at the moment for you. Um, mm-hmm. We've been doing a, a few different uh, profile pieces on different female owned restaurants at the moment and just trying to hear a little bit more about the situation for them and the pivots and and what what has 2020 brought that part of your business and have you been able to make up for it in other areas of your business? Yeah, it's an incredibly difficult time for hospitality. I think this year everywhere has been difficult, but particularly in Victoria with these extended stage four restrictions, meaning we can't we haven't been open for the best part of this year uh, to have any people dine in. We have been able to stay open for takeaway for a lot of the time, which has been obviously very, very helpful in um, making some of the rent payments and the overheads of running running the business. But I think in the very early days, it was incredibly tough. Before any of the rent relief that came in, before JobKeeper had been announced, before anyone really knew Mm -hmm. what to do, everything was forced to close before any of the measures to counteract the impact of that were introduced. So there was this big period where we were just paying full rent and totally shut Mm. and that was really overwhelming we're hemorrhaging money and uh, everyone sort of was so uncertain but as time has gone on being able to open for takeaway has meant that takeaway isn't a big part of our trade like it is for some other cafes so it required a bit of extra different marketing Um, but again everyone's been really responsive and really supportive the community's been wonderful Mm. as soon as JobKeeper came in and Rent Relief came in that really allowed us financially to survive there was a big question of whether we'd even be able to open again if it was just better to close now and kind of cut our losses because we just couldn't continue to fund it being closed Mm. um now we've i think there's a lot of an there's an emotional roller coaster in the whole process of being attached to what you think the year is going to look like and Mm -hmm. i think for a while we kept thinking we're going to reopen next week no we're going to reopen next week and next week and we kept trying to set these goals and we'll be disappointed but what we've really 
sort of fallen into is, okay, it's a write-off year for everyone. At the moment where we can break even, we're not making anything, we're not losing anything. It's not a great position to be in, but uh, I think focusing on the things you're grateful for without, I think there's a duality in everything. You don't have to be happy all the time and you don't have to be like, oh, yes, nothing's wrong. You can be stressed, you can be concerned for the future, but you can also be grateful that we're not losing money. We can still do takeaway. We still get to see people's faces every day. Mm. We still get to see our regulars every day. And there is a possibility that we can open again. We haven't, you know, sunk sort of halfway along and halfway through the year. So it's a weird time, but we've, I think, made our peace with just coasting along until we can do better. And that's far better than having to close altogether. Yeah. So just keeping sort of the positive positive attitude towards it whilst acknowledging that it's really tough yeah yeah so I know I'm kind of jumping all over the place here but because this is a really (laughs) this is obviously a really strange year and I think that what you just said there in the sense of the goals that many of us may have set or had planned like the the path that we thought this year may have uh created for us I mean I don't think anyone in the world really has that path anymore it's 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 really changed our lives so much and we've really had Mm. to put off the things that we thought we were going to do and a lot of the goals now come back to to surviving and I get that with our business as well and obviously with a cafe it's it's pretty clear that the goal is to um you know make sure that you can make the most of of the benefits that are available to to keep uh, staff on or to keep staff paid and obviously to pivot to making sure that you can offer a really great great takeaway offering but um it's obviously different you may have had plans to expand that you may have had plans to open a second one a third one a 20th one whatever it is and that's probably on hold at the moment you said when we first got on the phone you called yourself a positivity panda which I thought was just <laughs> a cool term to just mention now but I and I, I definitely get that from your book and I, I imagine you got the publishing deal to publish this book before COVID yeah. and you may have yeah. even written it before COVID or written most of it before COVID um, and it definitely comes through in the in the book. There's so much positivity, and there's um, so much there to to try and kind of jolt you into a a, a, a a less comfortable position that can ultimately bring you something more in the future. But how you're in stage four lockdown in Melbourne at the moment? How do you stay positive? And not just from your current situation, but the news is pretty difficult at the moment no matter what way you, mm. you you turn in terms of what's going on internationally in terms of the u.s election in terms of climate change in terms of so much how do you stay positive and optimistic that's a really really good question and it has been really hard it's required i think a lot of us to review all the ways we make ourselves feel good and stay positive and keep ourselves on track because all the strategies you would normally use you can't necessarily rely on when you can't go outside and you can't go for a run and you can't see your friends and you can't get a massage or go to the acupuncture. You can't do all your normal, uh, resort to all your normal techniques to look after yourself and your mind. Uh, But I think I did write the book before COVID. I did have a chance to do most of my edits during isolation. So I had some concept of what sort of what direction we were going in was able to edit some parts to make sure it reflected kind of what what's happened but I never could have guessed how much I would need all the lessons that I'd already written in the book even more so in this situation because the whole concept of seizing the yay or finding your joy is not that you should be happy all the time I am a bit of a positivity panda I do find I'm a bit of a I have a bubbly disposition generally and that comes quite easy to me it's harder for me to not be that way than it is to 
to look at the bright side. It comes, I think it's also probably spurred on by the fact that I have got an adoption in my heritage and it, it does fuel an extra level of gratitude and appreciation, which then leads to the bubbliness. But um, what I've really had to remind myself this year is that a couple of things that come from the book but have been reinforced. One of them is that uh, if you don't have the bad times, you won't recognize the good. We're not meant to be happy all the time. Discomfort is actually the most fertile ground for growth and realization, taking stock. So while mm. we wouldn't necessarily have wished for a global pandemic this year, that doesn't it doesn't preclude the fact that we can gain our greatest learnings and transformations mm-hmm. from this year. Yeah. If anything, it might have allowed a lot of us to take stock to sort of stop and jump off the autopilot circuit and jump off this crazy pace where we actually haven't thought about what makes us happy or if we're happy Mm. or if we're healthy or if we're connecting with people or if we're enjoying our lives. I think the negativity has allowed a reset, a mass slowdown and a mass reevaluation of what is working in our lives, what isn't and what you want to choose to put back in. Mm. a quote that I really love has been just because um, telling people they can't be sad because others have it better is like telling people they can't be happy because others have it worse. Telling people they can't be sad because others have it worse is like telling people they can't be happy because others have it better. Mm-hmm. And I think um, another big reminder is relativity in everything in relation to 2020 and all our experiences. You can be grateful and positive, but also feel like it's tough and crappy at the same time. So I've been, reminding myself it's okay to have both levels of emotions and that's what adds to the richness of life but just to be gentle with yourself as you kind of go up and down through those cycles because you're not meant to have a normal reaction to an abnormal year Mm. um and also that um yeah focusing on on the beautiful things that can come out of it but also letting yourself be uncomfortable in the bit that you're going through um and i think also that happiness and positivity is an effort it's even for people like me who, you know, I identify myself, a big part of my identity is being a positivity panda. Even I've had moments where I'm in the fetal position, just totally overwhelmed by the state of the world, wracked with anxiety or exhausted or just totally uh, disheartened by the fact that we can't go outside for more than an hour. That's fine. That's totally normal. And that does kind of shake me because it's not part of who I am, but it's normal to feel that in these circumstances. But it also reminds me happiness is never in any state of the world or joy or good, you know, moments of positivity is not just going to, it's not just going to hit you if you just kind of sit there and don't try and cultivate it. It takes a really uh, concerted amount of curation of what you look at. If you know you're having a really vulnerable day and you're feeling really down, maybe don't read the news or maybe don't go and voraciously consume negative content that's reminding you of all the risks and the dangers. Like that's important to be aware of the world, but pick your moments of when you're going to consume what types of things. If you need more positivity, surround yourself with more positive things. Like make an effort to make time for things that take your mind off the state of the world. Curate how you, you know, what areas of your house you use for work and rest so that you've got boundaries. Like I think we expect, um, I think we think we are our emotions and we're powerless against them. But really, any kind of emotional balance and state takes a really big effort. And I think that's something I'm reminding myself of as well. That I'm not just going to wake up and feel good unless I do things that help me wake up and feel good. So Mm. getting enough sleep getting enough vitamin D, even if I can't be outside all the time. Talking to my friends and not going so inwards because you don't feel like talking to anyone, but connecting with humans so that you do get that burst of adrenaline and uh, and endorphins. Exercising, I think all of us have, uh, any routine has gone out the window and we 
when you're feeling crappy, you often don't feel like doing anything, but those are the things that really bring back feelings of happiness and joy and positivity. Mm. But yeah, I think happiness is something you cultivate um, and you can't have that in a negative environment. So you have to choose your environment as much as you can. And you have far more, I think we, in life generally, but in this year specifically, we forget how much choice we have over what we consume, over who we let into our lives, over what energy we surround ourselves with. And um, the more you kind of focus on, it's like when you're on riding a bike and your parents always say, focus on the gap. If you focus on the gap, you'll go through the gap. If you focus on the tree, you'll hit the tree. It's the same with positivity and negativity. If you focus on the negative stuff, you're going to be really overwhelmed. You're going to probably feel a bit yuck. If you focus on the light at the end of the tunnel, the positives, that you're, the things you're grateful for and all the ways, even start brainstorming holidays you'll go on or making lists of things you want to do when you can mm. or just having a great yak with a friend, I think there are still moments of joy in the, in the darkness. You just have to really look for them. Yeah. One thing I found in in the, the lockdown where I am is, um, you know, back in, I mean, I'm in Sydney, so I'm not experiencing the Victorian back lockdown, but the lockdown when our kids and were home from daycare and home from school is that obviously it was hectic, particularly as a working parent and, you know, we're trying to keep a business running and we're doing all this crazy stuff. But at the same time, we also found a little bit of space in our day and we had to find ways to fill mm-hmm. that space. And the ways that we found to fill the space kind of became things that I think I might define as uh, play and <laughs> As an adult, yeah. particularly as um, as a, as a when, when when you're out working, when you so much of your life gets so consumed by work, I think we many of us don't even know what it means to to play at all. Like I, if you'd asked me that, I've got ideas now, and I enjoy, you know, I've re- I've opened up space for creativity and for learning new things and for music and things that I hadn't really been done previously or I hadn't done in like fifteen years or so, and. When I see that you talk a lot about play, I'd never kind of considered it as play, but I'd love to hear that from your perspective. What, what, when you play, what are you doing and um, <laughs> what kind of ideas are there? And do you think, is there any, any merit in what I'm saying in the sense that maybe some people have discovered little opportunities to do very simple bits of play that they otherwise would have filled the time working or doing something else for? Yes. Absolutely. So play has been, I reckon, my biggest revelation in the past few years that's absolutely changed my disposition, my life, my health and well-being, everything, because I used to really conceive of life. And even after I left law and moved into business, I still had this concept of life being very binary, like you're either working or you're resting. You're either like, you know, kicking goals and working on your side hustle or working on your business or in the law firm, I was doing my law work or I was sleeping and resting so that I could just get back to work again. There was no concept of like, we're not here to work and die. That would be such a waste of human existence on the planet. There's reasons why there are activities for joy. Like there's sport, there's dance, there's there's a word hobby for a reason. And the problem when I was in the law firm and, you know, that was created by the fact that I didn't make any time or maybe didn't even have any time for anything other than work and rest was that when people asked, if you didn't, if you didn't want to be a lawyer, like what would you be? I actually didn't know what my hobbies were. I had no idea what I liked. How out of touch must you be with yourself if you can't answer the simple question of what do I do for fun? I did nothing for fun. And then when I moved into business and my work was fun, I turned my hobby into a job. I had even less incentive to make room for leisure because Mm. my work was fun. Mm. But then I ended up still somehow back in this cycle of just working to sleep, to sleep, to go back to work. And I think 
the missing link has always been. And for your brain to reset, for your creativity to refresh, like if you don't get distance from what you're doing, no, no matter how much you enjoy it and no matter how good at it you are, you're going to get stale. You're going to run out of fuel. And also life is just going to be so boring if you're just working and sleeping and working and sleeping because there's so much beautiful gray area in, in between to explore that I didn't make time for in I reckon 25 years of my life. Just since I was five, I had forgotten how to play. And mm. we take life so seriously. We're so concentrated on our time being made worthy or us spending it well and not wasting it and being productive in every minute. I got to the point where even with my rest, I was like, how can I A-type achieve at resting? Yeah. Like, how can I be the best <laughs> at resting? <laughs> so I really had to turn myself into a research project and notice when I was having a really great time, when I forgot what time it is, when I completely detached from my sense of obligation and I, when I was just doing something for the sake. And then I wrote that down over, I reckon, about a year and noticed which activities turned up the most. And most of the time, it was activities that I knew I was crap at but didn't care about getting good at, you know, the beauty of going back to being a beginner. So I wasn't trying to achieve that. Things that were really manual and that I couldn't be working at the same time as doing. So gardening, playing tennis, like I'm so bad at tennis, but I don't care because I just do it for fun. Painting, uh, we, I ended up going to like a pottery class, you know, everything on the Eat, Pray, Love list, if anyone's read that book, like everything that's a typical hobby, I always laughed and like brushed them off, but I'd actually never tried any of them. So how would I even know if I liked doing them or not? Mm. And I realized the more I did activities that were totally separate from my productivity, the more productive I was in my productive time because I had balance. My brain was able to breathe away from its like productive identity and just get lost in like crime fiction or true crime books. Like it's got nothing to do with my job. It's got nothing to do with anything that requires me to be on. Mm. And it's, it, it's just, I think my whole life energy, everything has flourished since I've, I, I work less hours, but I work better hours because I make a whole Sunday is just for play. I can't do anything that I can achieve that. Otherwise I just get too wound up. So mm. I think try as many things as you can. If you find yourself in a position like I was where you don't know what you like doing, research yourself try as much as you can and even if you keep finding things you don't like that's also really valuable information i found out i love puzzles i love board games but i hate you know some things that other people love like i don't like computer games i don't like online games i don't like games on my phone i like really manual things i've rediscovered sudoku we do puzzles we do crosswords i've learned how to do cryptic cross crosswords i've gone on um on youtube and done salsa classes like mm. don't be afraid to look silly while you discover what you really love and um i think play is something that children i don't know why we're all children and yet you would forget it with most people that you see because they take themselves so seriously it's that childlike sense of wonder that we all lose that i think we all need to get back in our lives because it's, yeah um, it's just such a joy Exactly. I think I like the way that you put it. Um, you described it as doing things that you can't achieve at because it could be tempting to make your play re, um, connected to something that you can achieve at. Um, you know, you might make it about learning some new area that is ultimately going to improve your business or improve your work or something, yeah. but to, to actually think of it as <laughs> disconnected from it. That can be something else. It's also great and also necessary, like a business development, self-development, whatever it is. But but play has its own little category. 
hopefully in yes, your, your day, if not your day, then at least your week. That happened for me because I would walk my dog and think, oh, I'm resting, but I'd be listening yeah. to a finance podcast oh, or yeah, yeah. a growth hacking <laughs> podcast. And I'd call that rest. But what I've realized is you have to put that stuff in your working hours so that your off hours are truly off. It's not off if you're like in the bath, but trying to learn a new language or yep. trying to code something like that's self-improvement, but it's not rest. It's Ex- not play. It's not for joy. <laughs> exactly. I relate to that a lot. I always go for a run, but listen to a podcast that's going to keep me informed in some way at the same time, yeah. because I couldn't possibly think that the run and just being with my thoughts would be enough. I have to make it doubly productive. <laughs> Um, yeah. <laughs> but yes, thank you so much. Um, your book is uh, Seize the Yay and there's so many great lessons in there um, around uh, getting over perfectionism and getting over self-doubt and getting uh, stepping into your discomfort zone. Um, you've got a chapter there, Yay is a Staircase, Not an Elevator, which is all very awesome as well. But I thought that maybe you might be able to leave us with one tip that you think might be particularly relevant to women right now oh gosh on seizing their yay (laughs) that is a great one i mean the yay is a yay is a a staircase not an elevator is probably one of the top ones that i would love to impart to anyone because i think women try and climb all the stairs at once for all the people in Mm -hmm. our lives as a mass generalization but i think a lot of people will identify with it uh we light ourselves on fire to keep other people warm and then wonder why our own well-being and goals and dreams are kind of like falling to the bottom of the list. Um, and we also try and do everything at once and know the answer and get to the end and tick things off. And I think um, appreciating the slowdown, uh, getting in touch with who you are and what you love, making a little bit of time for yourself without feeling guilty or selfish for doing that and just taking baby steps. Baby steps are still steps in the right direction. So even if you are a mum and a working mum that's running business babies and real babies and husband babies or whatever, I think if you can even make a couple of minutes in each day for yourself to just work on what makes you yay, like read a book for five minutes, listen to a you know non-educational podcast for five minutes, watch Netflix for five minutes, have a bath, whatever it is, I think um, we all need to put aside a little bit of time to just take a little bit of a step closer to our yay that's separate to all the other hats that we wear. And women are renowned for wearing too many hats. So sometimes maybe just take them all off and have a minute. Exactly. Well, thank you so much, Sarah. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you for listening to the Women's Agenda podcast. If this episode did raise any issues for you or if you or someone you know needs any assistance, I just wanted to share some key helplines for you. The first one being Beyond Blue on 1300 224 636. The next one is Lifeline on 13 11 14. And another one is Kids Helpline on 1800 551 800. You can also check out all of their websites. Now, a reminder once again that the stories that we do cover on Women's Agenda you can find in some form on our website where you can also go and subscribe to our daily free newsletter that comes out just before lunchtime. The Women's Agenda podcast is produced by Agenda Media and you can also go and check out our new and second podcast called The Leadership Lessons. It's hosted by Kate Mills and it goes into some really deep and interesting territory examining how to lead for the critical decade ahead by speaking with uh, key female leaders. Go and check it out. Thank you for listening.